1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Let's read. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Boundaries. They're tricky, aren't they? I think cricket and baseball are probably the two sports where your team is rewarded for smashing through the boundaries. But on the whole, boundaries are here to help us thrive, to stay within them. When you think of human life, just think of um, in, in the world of sports, stay there for a moment. A football match on an ice hockey arena, it would be funny for five minutes, but it wouldn't work, would it? If it was Champions League, you need the sport to be in the pitch, the arena, that is fit for purpose. Think of the last 24 hours that you've had. They're divided in two quite critical ways. Sleep and activity. Sleep and activity, boundaries that are necessary for us to thrive. And the interesting thing is whether you're a baby, young person, teenager, student, those boundaries tend not to fit with what parents and grown adults want in life but they're there to thrive. Think about your relationships and the boundaries we have there. It's not okay for a person to deliberately inflict pain on you, is it? But then there are situations where, say like you're giving blood, you walk into a uh, blood center, there's a relative stranger there, yes, professional, but you roll up your sleeve and you allow them to put a a pretty hefty needle into that uh, vein to inflict pain for a time, some discomfort for a greater good. But the boundary markers are there for our good. And when we take the Bible's ethic on sexual relationships seriously, it means that we find clear boundaries that make safe places for sex, that make safe places for intimacy in our relationships to thrive. The issue as well isn't having boundaries. Whether you're non-religious, secular, from different religions, everyone operates with boundaries. Boundaries are there when it comes to sex. The key issue is who has the authority to decide them and what motivates us to keep those boundaries. Is it our needs or serving others? And so the biblical teaching on human sexuality, on sexual ethics, has been contested. We know that. It has been resisted throughout history. It continues to be contested and and 
resisted today, and especially in our cultural moment. But think about this more deeply as well. Biblical ethics still resonate with our culture. If the Me Too movement has shown us anything, it's that sexuality matters profoundly. Its violation leads to deep emotional, physical, and psychological damage. Something that the scriptures not only testify to, but answer by revealing a loving, faithful God who pursues, who forgives, who welcomes, who heals his unfaithful people. In Jesus Christ, we have the friend of sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes who embrace the sexually broken and offers in himself a deeper love, a deeper fulfillment of which human sexuality and human intimacy was only a signpost of a greater love. There's a living parable of a greater marriage between Christ and his people, the church, in his eternal kingdom. So as we come as church this morning, I want to start by recognizing we come obviously with unique and very personal expectations and experiences of relationships and sex. I'm aware as well as we gather that we have our young people in with us from 11 onwards. And so there's a level at which as families, we have to learn how to teach and disciple one another in this issue. At Grace Church, we are fully committed to the Bible's teaching on pursuing obedience to God's word for human relationships and sexual activity given in the Bible. We uphold, as a church that's associated with the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, we uphold their statement, which is a biblical statement on human relationships and sexuality, which is also supported by organizations like the True Freedom Trust and Living Out, which are ministries we support. I've benefited from them as well. And they particularly help people with a whole range of issues and pastoral needs around sexuality and same-sex attraction. So as we look at God's will for sexual relationships, I want us to reinforce the bedrock as well of Jesus' saving grace. We've sung about how deep a father's love for us is, of how he's with us in his providence through tough times. I'm not preaching to you as someone who has sexual purity sorted out, but as a saved, repentant sinner with scars, with failures, with regrets about my desires, my actions, my thoughts, a work in progress. But the wonderful and liberating good news of Jesus Christ is that no sin is too big for his cleansing blood. Have that in mind as we work through this passage. He does not turn away anyone who wants his forgiveness and help and his restoration. So with that in mind, let's start in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. And the first point is quite simply this. We've got to know what God's will is. The Thessalonian Christians needed that. We need that today. And the Thessalonians had started well. They were a model church. They'd heard the gospel from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They'd repented of their idolatry. That is, fundamentally, they stopped loving anything else that took God's place. They turned from that. They said, no, there's a new ultimate love, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, Son, and Spirit. They moved from one direction into life with God, 
away from idolatry and trusting Jesus for his forgiveness and new life. And now we're told in chapter 1, not only have they turned away, but they are now actively serving the living God. And that is a model for all Christians. We were living a life of destruction. God called us, God saved us, and has put us on a path of life and service to him. And throughout Greece, other people had heard of this dramatic transformation. This conversion had spread. The news was going through the land that there were these people in Thessalonica who were worshipping the Lord Jesus, whose lives were changed. And yet Paul, the apostle who planted the church there and was on mission there, doesn't become complacent. We see in chapter 3, verse 10, that he is praying for them night and day to, to keep on praying that they would grow in faith, that he would be in some way able to supply the gaps, the lack in their faith. And then in verses 11 to 13, what Namdi preached for us last week in chapter 3, we see Paul's prayer written out. This is what I'm praying for you Christians, so that we today can pray the same prayer and apply it to each other. A prayer that expects God to grow them in love for each other. A prayer that calls on God to strengthen the Christians that they will be blameless. That is, they will live with integrity, intentionally going God's way. That they will be holy and ready for Jesus' return. And then that prayer acts in the letter as a transition. If they've received the gospel, if they're serving God, if Paul is praying this prayer, what does that look like? And we transition, chapter 4, into the so what. If you're called a Christian, you've got to live it. The gospel gives you an imperative. Let's see how that's worked out. And so here we are in chapter 4 and verse 1. You see, good news and the godliness go hand in hand. And what do we read? As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So even though it was a short trip that Paul had in Thessalonica, he was able to be teaching them about that distinctive lifestyle. You accept the gospel, things change. It wasn't just a quick gospel presentation, a quick prayer, sign on the dotted line, and he was off. He was sharing with them how to live out to God's glory. And their minds would be renewed each day. They're not to conform to the patterns of the world around them. Verse 1 makes clear that the number one priority, did you see this? The number one priority of a Christian disciple is to what? Have a look in the text. Please God. If there's one thing you take away from this morning, if everything else falls on deaf ears, whatever, you're sidetracked, you think about other things, remember this. If you love Jesus, your whole life's ambition and aim is to please God. And the Thessalonians, we're told, we're doing just that. Paul says, you're doing it. You're living it. This is great. Do more and more. So the Christian life never moves off that priority. It just goes deeper. It says more. Increase in it. Continue in it. Don't think you're missing out if you're not living a life that is saying, I'm about God's pleasure. Why? Because our pleasure, our delight, our satisfaction is utterly wrapped up in that joyful pleasure and love of God. And so the ethical teaching, this instruction that Paul gave them, came, as well we're told, with the full weight and authority of the Lord Jesus. Verse 2, 
It is God's word to them. Now, we saw this earlier in chapter 2, verse 13, that when Paul came with the gospel message, the Thessalonians heard it and they received it, verse 13, chapter 2, as the very word of God. Paul is preaching, this is the Lord. We've got to take this seriously. This comes with an authority that isn't just this guy, Paul from Tarsus, speaking with, with some clever ideas. This is divine. And so here, the ethical teaching, these instructions, are not Paul just making something up that he felt was a good extra for them to work into. It is God's will, God's revelation, Jesus' authoritative word to us in the Spirit. And you could see that God was, his word was at work. Why? Because their lives were changing. God's word was at work because their lives are changing. Same is true for us today. If God's word is at work in your life, there will be change. It might be incremental. It might be step by step. It will be painful. It will be a struggle. But God's word does God's work in our lives. We should expect that, Christians. And that is the word we're reading and listening to today. I'm praying the Holy Spirit will engage each one of us, no matter where we are, whether it's unbelief or have been living with the Lord and walking with him for many decades. The Holy Spirit is still at work, at work right now. What is he saying to you? But how do we please God? Well, look at verse 3. By doing his will. So what's God's will for us? Uh, verse 3, that you should be sanctified. Well, what does that mean, Paul? Verse 7, if you track it through, it's like these, these verses are bookends. Verse 7 unpacks what it means to be sanctified. It expands on God's will. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So God's will and God's call, what he's doing in our lives, is quite clear. It's about purity and holiness. To be sanctified, therefore, is to be set apart, is to do this, is to live this way. Now, before you start thinking, wait a sec, does that mean escaping to a log cabin in some Alaskan forest or a, a monastery in rural Spain or something like that with nothing but your sandals, a woolen cassock and your study Bible. Don't worry. It's fantastically normal sanctification. It's fantastically every day because it is about the lives you are living right here, right now. That is where sanctification takes place. In the grit and grind of the stuff you're facing right now. No monasteries, no Alaskan log cabins, no special retreats needed. Because God's call on his people is simply be set apart to serve him practically where he has placed you. And you know, we sanctify a whole bunch of stuff in everyday life. Think of your gym kit. You've got your trainers, the leggings, the, the shorts, the t-shirt, the towel that you use, the water bottle, they're all sanctified for the gym. They're set apart for that purpose. Uh, I bet you have a favorite mug as well, the one that you love your coffee or tea in. And, and you do secretly get annoyed if someone else uses it before you do. That's the sanctified mug. It's set apart for you, for that first cuppa. To be sanctified is that God has said, you are now mine. Your purpose is my pleasure, and you find pleasure in my purpose. You're set apart, and that has to get worked out 
in everyday life. And I know that, rightly, we have loads of questions about God's will. Where should I live? Who should I date? Who should I marry? What's God's will for how I spend this money? And they're great questions, and we do probably need to do a seminar on how we can discern God's will and what that looks like and drill down into that more deeply. But just as a headline, remember this. God's will is that you please him. His Holy Spirit is with you, so go figure it out. Ask the question, what will most honor and glorify him? And with wise counsel, with prayer, with Christian family and friends around you, take active initiative. Do what pleases God and be holy. And the shocking thing is that in verse 8, as we read, that's why God's will fundamentally means obeying his will. Word, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God. Verse 8, the stakes are really high. This isn't just a lifestyle choice. This isn't just an opinion you can, well, let's measure that and weigh it up. What God says comes with a a consequence. Blessing or abandonment. So who do you want to really please in life? You've got to get that straight as we start talking about sexual ethics. That's the big question. Who do you want to please? And remember here, Paul is writing to Christians. He's not engaging with the non-Christian, the secular world at this point. He is talking to Christians to get straight their priorities, their context. He's not throwing stones at non-believers. He's not getting petitions to the, uh, the Greek uh, civic council to say, you need to tidy up. He's saying, house of God, get your lives in order. If you're a Christian, this counts. So who do we want to please? And with that in mind, we dive into verses 3b through to 6. This is the section. So we've had these bookends about who we're pleasing, who we're listening to, what's the authority. And then in the middle of the sandwich is the application. It's that, well, what does it look like in this context? And Paul immediately spells out what being set apart practically looks like. Living a holy life that pleases God in the area of sexual immorality. So verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Now that phrase that's translated sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It's a catch-all term that's used uh, to talk about any sort of sexual conduct outside of the God-given covenant of marriage. Jesus uses this word when he's talking about the, the deep problem of our human heart. In Matthew 15, verses 19 to 20, it's there. That word he uses is there in the list of sins. And, and it's describing that sex before marriage, adultery, prostitution, even same-sex behavior, all of that is caught in that word. You know, three centuries before Jesus Christ was on the earth teaching his God-pleasing sexual ethic, Domathenus, a, a Greek statesman, an orator from ancient Athens, commented on what was going on in public life sexually. And he, he commented this, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear legitimate children. So how he summed up what was going on. You can see how male-orientated that is. 
Interestingly, three centuries later, when Paul's writing this letter, the New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce has done research on that culture in his commentary and clearly comes to the conclusion nothing had changed. That was still prevalent. Worst, if you had a reputation for really going for it in all those different areas, you might be satirized as a bit of a glutton. And I'm going, wait a sec. We haven't really moved on, have we? Just think of the comments about some of our public leaders and celebrities, what splashed across the news, and either laughed at or celebrated or just, well, that's just normal. The historian Kyle Harper argues that slaves and poor women were readily exploited in that culture. Prostitutes were regarded as available for sexual gratification. Male slaves could be abused. Boys and girls were also subject to sexual exploitation. How far have we progressed? I think of the work that human trafficking organizations do, and it is sickening. We don't want to go there. We don't want to see it, but it is happening. The exploitation, the oppression, the commodifying, This is the outworking of a real ethic, and we have to face it. And against this backdrop, this is the interesting thing. This historian Carl Hooper says, the sexual ethics of Jesus Christ were unprecedented. Harper has gone as far as to say that this is the first sexual revolution. It's Jesus Christ who brought the first sexual revolution in a profoundly countercultural one that honors personhood, that honors the dignity of men and women, regardless of social standing. And so Paul calls the Thessalonians to this radical obedience. He recognizes there is a battle for their hearts. They've got to disentangle themselves from the previous lifestyles, from the previous values, from the, just the cultural air they're breathing. Does it sound much different today? And the you in verses 3 to 6, the you that's used there, as he says you, plural, the whole community, that sexual boundaries and controls are for both men and women. It's not what men can get away with or be served by. It's men and women together, brothers and sisters. And whilst the shock in the first century would have been that men must be sexually constrained, today the shock is that anyone is expected to be sexually restrained. Both cultures share the notion that we have freedom to satisfy our urges, our desires, as we want, in any acceptable way. It's our business. It's our individual choice. And in contrast, Paul says, no, there's clear and consistent teaching here that is scriptural from the Old Testament to the New. Any kind of sex outside marriage is forbidden. No sleeping with slaves, no sleeping with prostitutes, no partner swapping, no affairs, no one-night stands, no sex with someone of the same sex. None of it pleases God. It is against his revealed will. It's against his good intention for sex because it degrades fundamentally the dignity of the people he has created. It fundamentally says no to his will, saying we can find pleasure another way. Sam Albury, 
um, in his very readable and sensitively written book, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? I, I recommend this if you want, if there's just one book you look up and, and have a read of. I'm going to uh, put together a list of resources because as I was preparing for this, I was just reading, 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 and it's one of those topics that is so massive, so we can't cover everything today, and we will do some more seminars on it, but um, there will be a reading list and some resources that you can follow up with, which will be in the weekly news, but this book, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With, is fantastic, and Sam writes so well and so sensitively. He, he mentions a, a scene in a film, you might have seen it, it's an old film, 2001, maybe not that old for some, like myself who can remember when I watched it, but um, I actually watched the Spanish version, which is better, but there's a film called Vanilla Sky with Tom Cruise, and um, Tom Cruise's character has a one-night stand with a woman that's played by Cameron Diaz, and what's interesting is the dialogue that takes place later in the film where she challenges his character by saying, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? Fascinating observation there, isn't it? Your body makes a promise whether you've assented to that mentally, rationally, whatever. And as Sam Albury, who used that illustration, as he explains, in other words, what is going on on your body is meant to be a token of what is meant to be happening at a deeper level. It's always an outworking. And, and this week, as I went into the post office, and I was thinking through my sermon, I went into the post office, first thing I saw was the Radio Times. I should have put the picture up, I forgot to put it on the PowerPoint. But on the front cover of the Radio Times, in big white letters, let's talk about sex. I was like, okay, God. <laughs> and it was an interview with the director of a drama on the BBC at the moment called Conversations with Friends. It's based on Sally Rooney's first book. I haven't watched it, uh, and don't take this as a recommendation. Um, it's, it's got some very, it sounds pretty explicit sex scenes that have been filmed within it. And that's what they're discuss, discussing with the director, because these are key parts within the book. And in the interview in the Radio Times, I just found it fascinating that the director commented, sex scenes in this drama are used as an extension of conversation where bodies say much, if not more than words. Now, the reason for bringing these illustrations out is I'm not throwing stones. I'm saying, amen. You know deep down, this is exactly how it should be. Your bodies together do say deeper words. This is what God's intention was. There's a profound communication. That's what he intended. That's why to settle for anything less than God's standard for sex as Tim and Kathy Keller put it, is counterfeit intimacy. It is to exchange true intimacy for its parody, a sort of cartoon imitation. That is what's going on. It is easy to think that sex outside marriage and sex within marriage is essentially the same thing. It, the only difference is uh, timing, uh, with or without vows. You know, whatever, what are you going on about? There's no difference. But they are fundamentally, profoundly different acts. One is established in the context of a lifelong, exclusive, self-giving. The other is a form, however you dress it up, of taking. 
And I know, just as I say that, I know sex within marriage as well can be taking. It can be sinful. It can be regressive and abusive. But that is not what God's talking about, and he condemns that as well. Because our sex lives are broken, and we need redemption. When you've given yourself wholly to another in marriage, and the other person has made those solemn commitments that would be hard to break, there is a new level, and thus a freedom from fear. There's a new level of intimacy. There's, we're freed from worry and anxiety about that person thinks. We can radically lose ourselves then in a life of love. So sex becomes something that deepens our communication. Uh, and that's why Paul advocates this self-control. Learn to control your own body. Now, some translators suggest that the word here, vessel, body, you can see it in the footnote, some translators are saying, well, is he talking about sort of wives? Because that word for vessel is used later by Peter to talk about wives, but he's talking about wives and husbands, so it's not just exclusively wives. So there's this long debate, is it about Paul's actually saying, find a wife and sort yourself out? Well, that seems to go against the flow of the culture and also Paul's spirit to say this is for both men and women. It seems the plain reading is how the NIV have translated it here. Learn to control your own body. And Paul, within the bounds of decency, as well as being as direct as possible, is basically telling men and women not to be controlled by their sexual organs. Don't, don't be controlled by the desires. You've got a new desire. And it seems that he was really concerned. Get this. Did, did you see it when he talks about brothers and sisters in the next clause? He's really concerned that actually the problem is going to be within the church as people just think we've got free license now and a group of people that we can just do this stuff with. Don't take advantage of each other in church. Live pure lives here in this context. That is, whether it's adultery, promiscuous sex, it could divide and weaken, and it does. Weaken churches. It destroys gospel ministries. It's horrific to see. So, as we come to land, what, what does that self-control then look like for us? And I appreciate, I am not going to be able to cover all the bases for everyone's situation. Single, married, divorced, wrestling with same-sex attraction. Wherever you are on that spectrum of sexuality and human relationships and experiences, there's no way... An upfront talk can deal with that. But what I can say is we are here to support one another. If you want to talk, if you want to pray, I would be, it would be a privilege to do that with you. The elders, life group leaders, parents with young people, please have these conversations. Have that pastoral support. We want to give that to one another without judgment. So what does self-control look for us? look like for us. One, I think there's realism. I think we can enjoy life fully and God's blessing by living within his boundaries. That's the gift for sex. But the realism is it will be hard. It will be a battle. Let's just own that. Chapter 5, verse 8, Paul tells us how we get the right kit on to fight the battle. We'll be looking at that in a few weeks' time. That it is a spiritual fight. 
So let's be realistic. But also, the realism on sex works the other way as well. Because sex really isn't everything. It really isn't. Even in marriage, it is not the ultimate. So Christians, you know what? We probably need to repent of idolizing it in that sense. And also, we need to repent of the idea that if, I, if I'm obedient here... And, and, and obey the laws here, if and when God in his wisdom and grace, and maybe if I get married, then everything will be zinging. Yeah, repent of that right now. One of the most helpful things I had years and years ago when I was working in London with a colleague, we went for col- uh, coffee, and he's much older, he was a mentor to me. He just openly shared how he and his wife, particularly at that point, um, she was struggling with mental health issues. They hadn't had sex for two years. And like, I'm 21, uh, 22, just sort of getting married and thinking, wow, what, what, two years? Yeah? And it was the most helpful conversation I've had because of his humility, but also he said, you know, it doesn't matter. We love each other. We find other ways to be intimate. And that's what we need to hear. Sex isn't the ultimate. Because that's God's design as well. It's meant to point to the ultimate, which is our love in Christ, our satisfaction in him as his people. So realism. Second, we need pastoral support. I already said that, but I want to reiterate it. We need to be honest We need to be Christ-centered in our friendships. Friendships are integral. They provide intimacy. They provide support. Not everything has to be sexual. But those friendships are gifts of God, which will help us. So I would recommend you do seek out a spiritual mentor, someone senior who you can have that accountability with, who can be praying for you, who can be a listening ear, who can give counsel from the scriptures, who is... Permitted to challenge, but also walk with us through that. I hope as elders we can grow to be that. I hope I can be that in some way. We pray that our life group leaders would be people who can do that. Parents, be parents who do that for your children. Have those conversations. Pray for them. Do not ignore this issue. But pastoral support and accountability... Then thirdly, self-control is rooted in the cross of Christ. When we look at the purity of the cross of Christ, we see a God who doesn't pretend we're better than we are, but in Jesus Christ steps into our reality, who lives the obedient life that we can't, who gives us his righteousness in his death and resurrection, who takes the judgment we deserve for all our sin and brokenness, including our sexual realities and experience. He secures forgiveness. So self-control will always start and finish by looking at the purity of the cross. And then fourthly, we see here Paul gives us, verse 8, he says you've got God already. You have the Holy Spirit. Self-control is his work. It's his fruit. So ask for it. What a wonderful gift. Again, Sam Albury puts it superbly when he says it's like when you've brushed your teeth, and you're drinking a glass of orange or a cup of tea, and it tastes really weird. It's kind of what the Holy Spirit does for us. He changes our appetites, our tastes. These things don't have the same hold. We want more. We want to be satisfied by real love, 
by real joy. And finally, self-control takes God's judgment seriously. It's there in verse 6b. The Lord is a perfect savior and judge. If we reject his forgiveness, if we mock his will and his word by living against him, there is only punishment. The everlasting presence of his, his holy anger, of that withdrawal of his blessings that we've enjoyed here, whether we've recognized it or not, that is terrifying. That is hell. That is a judgment that we want to take seriously as Christians because we love each other. The unloving thing to do is ignore it, just say it doesn't matter. But we love each other and we love Christ, so we can't ignore it. We can't dilute it. We can't water it down. We can't compromise. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And we have been given him. Just as I finished this week, I've been reading um, again the True Freedom Trust's magazine they have a fantastic ministry again i'd invite you to look them up true freedom trust online also look up living out their, their magazine's crammed full of biblical advice pastoral care counseling and, and stories of people who uh, are just finding hope and restoration in their sexuality and their sexual experiences from god um i read about Nat, who shared her experience of the recent women's retreat, which is an example of that fellowship, that pastoral care and support. She said, I was challenged to seek more than just knowing Jesus as a disciple or as a friend, but to him embrace him as our beloved. To embrace Jesus as our beloved. Grasping more fully how wide and long and high and deep Jesus' love for us is. To share my story with a group of women who understood my struggles was like a breath of fresh air. My life since becoming a Christian has felt like walking a tightrope between two identities. When I became a Christian, I lost many of my close LGBT friends. My new Christian friends, while deeply loving, have never quite understood my struggles and sacrifices. So sitting at the table with these other women felt like I had found my people. I felt I left with a renewed passion for Jesus. There's also the short testimony of a guy called Hank who just writes, for 30 years, from the, start I started, from the time I started using porn compulsively until I hit rock bottom with it, I was completely unsatisfied, undeveloped, and unhappy as a human being. Since I quit porn three years ago, my whole life has changed. You see, there's huge honesty there but they're examples of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. God meeting us where we're at, bringing redemption. And a final image for you just to think on as we close here. Matthew, can you flick on the slide? Um, as I was preparing this, I listened to a talk by Stefan Gustafsson, who is the director of the Center of Christian Apologetics in Stockholm. And he helpfully shared the Japanese ancient tradition of Kintsugi, which I say, looking at Miho, thinking I probably mispronounced that. But Miho, what does it mean, the definition of Kintsugi? Thank you for sharing that. So its translation is golden joinery, as you can see in the pictures here. And the philosophy is, quite simply, that 
repairing broken pottery, mending the cracked pieces with lacquer and dusted with either gold or silver or platinum. Essentially, the artist is treating the breakage and the repair as part of the history of the piece, of the object, rather than something to disguise rather than just brush it away and start all over again. As we meet Jesus in Scripture, we see a Savior who is in the business of taking sexually broken people, those who have been hurt and sinned against in relationships, those enslaved and acting on their lust, uh, and making them his beautiful treasure. By his Spirit, these broken and dead pieces, which are us and our lives, are brought to new life, healed and restored by his powerful word. Who are you trying to please? Who will you run to for strength and resource? Where will you find this life-giving love? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a good God. Your will for us is clear. You want us to be people who love you, who please you, who are holy, who are set apart, who are living out lives that honor you in every area. Lord, give us the strength to do that for your glory today. I pray particularly as we come with our histories, our experiences, our expectation of sex, sexuality, where we stand with that, what relationships we're in at the moment, maybe seeking relationships, Father, please, with your Holy Spirit in each one of us, wherever we are this morning, come and do your work. Bring your peace, your love, your healing. Give us deep satisfaction in you, the God who is holy and has called us into that holy family. Amen.